Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. The woke madness in history education is off the rails. Well, how do we change it? McClanahanAcademy.com. And because you listen to this podcast, if you use the coupon code PODCAST at checkout, you get 25% off every day, all day, 365 days a year on every class at McClanahanAcademy.com. So go to McClanahanAcademy.com, use coupon code PODCAST at checkout, and get a real history education at 25% off. Secession might be on the ballot in Texas. I'll talk about why that's important on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours. Surely, you can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. Purchase a class or 20 there. Keeps this podcast free of charge. You can also go to Spotify for podcasters. You can become a member, throw a few pennies my way, or click on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Or you can click on the heart button if you're watching on YouTube. It's the super thanks button. All those are great ways to support the show financially. You can also buy my logo and all kinds of cool stuff by clicking on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com or purchase one of my books. All of those things help support this show financially. But as always, painlessly... You can rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast so people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. And comment on YouTube for the algorithm. All those things help get more eyes and ears on the show. And as always, send me those show requests. I do want to see what you want to hear. Now, this is indirectly a listener-generated episode today. Because I've been sent this message about this Newsweek article several times, or at least about the headline several times, There is a chance that secession will be on the ballot in Texas very soon. Now, this is a little bit misleading because it's not really on the ballot for a public ballot. It's for the Republican Party. (laughs) So, it's it's a little different. Okay, but let's talk about... I'm going to read the Newsweek article and I'm going to talk about what this means, at least in a bigger picture. Now, about a month ago... On this program, I talked about an article at the Abbeville Institute from Boyd Cathy, and it was, you know, what would secession look like? And one of the things I brought up in that particular article, or that particular podcast concentrating on the article, was that we needed to have conventions. I'm going to reiterate this. One of the most important things that this show can do, or at the Abbeville Institute, or any other 10th Amendment Center, uh, Mises Institute, LearRockwell.com, uh, All these places that have discussed independence or decentralization, well, the most important functions they have is education. Education. And I say that because without the educational backing, a lot of this stuff is going to be moot. Here's why. What this would do, it puts it on the ballot. There'll be a vote on this measure, on a ballot. Okay, so it will be... It will be out there for public consumption. But what, what it does not do is force anyone to really take a stand publicly on the issue. 
we have to understand what the term secession means. In 1787 and 1788, the states acceded to the Constitution. They agreed to join the Union based on the Constitution. Now think about what that actually means. They agreed to the Constitution. Before that point, 1781 to 1788, when the Constitution is ratified, and really till 1789, till we have the first government, uh, the, the first Congress under the Constitution. We had a union. You could even say that the union was there you know, before that, but that would be a little different. It wasn't really a union. That was just a... a um, those people were ambassadors. So we had a union under a Constitution, the Articles of Confederation. So when the Philadelphia Convention convention is called in 1787, the states send delegates to a convention to discuss alterations to the Articles of Confederation. What they get is an entirely new constitution. Now remember, that constitution had no power. The United States was still operating under the Articles of Confederation. So what they needed to do was get some type of voice of the people. If you look at the United States Constitution, Article 7 says that the Constitution will go into effect when nine states ratify. It'll be between the states so ratifying the same. Now, in order to amend the Constitution, it can take conventions. You can have state conventions to do this. An Article 5 convention, it's called. Article 7, conventions of the states. Because conventions were public declarations by the people themselves. So those states acceded. Now the way the conventions worked is the legislatures called an election for delegates to a convention. You see, the legislature wasn't going to do it. The legislature is the voice of the people. I mean, you do have people electing legislators, but it's not directly called for that one particular issue. They didn't do this in plebiscite. They didn't do it in a quote-unquote national convention where you just had a few people from each state go and then decide. It was conventions, and the way the conventions were set up depended on the states. Some conventions had more delegates than others. A large state like New York, for example, only had 57 delegates. That was it. So, but you had other states, smaller states, that had more delegates. So it's interesting how that worked. But regardless, you had conventions accede to the document. So when 1816-61 rolls around, you have conventions secede from the document. The states then seceded. They agreed to it, and then they withdrew their support, resuming their status as an independent state. Now, the break here is important. If nine states didn't ratify the Constitution, it, the Articles of Confederation would still stay in effect. In other words, it's been argued that by agreeing to the Constitution, there was an act of secession from the Articles. This is how people discussed the Constitution at various times. There was a secession from the Articles into the Constitution. Now, 
The Constitution itself, the language of it says, is going to form a more perfect union. A union of what? A union of states. Not a union of people or anything like that, but a union of states. Okay? So we have this act withdrawing from the articles. We're withdrawing from the articles to accede to a new document. That accession is important because when you are acceding to something, then you can secede from it. The states and conventions could do the exact same act. It was not permanent. Now, you can go out and find quotes where people said, well, once you do it, it's a permanent choice. Was it? Because it was supposed to be permanent under the Articles. <clears throat> that was supposed to be a permanent move under the Articles of Confederation. Without question, that's how it was supposed to work. Of course, we know it did work that way, but that's how it was supposed to work. So, when you look at how this issue has to play out in the United States today, if it was going to work, then you would have to have some type of convention involved in the process. It cannot just be from a plebiscite. Now, the, the downfall of this, of course, is that it's very public. When you just have a ballot initiative, some type of thing on the ballot for people to vote on, it's all secret. Nobody knows what's going on. Nobody knows who's voting for and for, voting against. That's not the way the Constitution was ratified. It's not the way the states acceded to the Constitution. It was a very public move. And this, and same thing in 1860 and 61, it was a very public move. The people that went to these conventions publicly and vocally either were for or against it. And of course, there were people that voted against it in some states. There were people that made speeches against the move in some southern states. We know that in four states it was rejected initially and then, of course, accepted later after Lincoln called up 75,000 troops. Well, then, yeah, we're not going to, uh, to agree with coercing a state. So we know it was a very public move. You had people that said openly, I support this or I don't support this. And all of these people in 1860 and 61 were elected by the people of the states, just as happened in 1787 and 1788. It's a public move. When you go to a ballot initiative, it becomes a very secretive private move. It's, it's not the same. And of course, it doesn't even carry any weight. A convention does. Particularly if the legislature calls the convention and says, we're going to abide by the results of this convention. If the convention votes one way, or the other way, this is the will of the people, and this is what we are doing. That's what has to happen here. Not just simply a secret ballot where nobody knows what's going on. Who's influencing it, who's not. We've all seen how that can work out with some shady dealings with ballots. Ballot stuffing, ballot harvesting, all of these kind of things. Now, the downfall of that in the current political climate is that it's weaponized. And what do I mean by that? You don't need the U.S. Army to oppose this. And that's, oh, the Army is going to invade Texas. It doesn't need to happen that way. The United States government has at its disposal a weaponized bureaucracy. They can go after people that publicly support this. And let's say the state of Texas called a convention. They said, all right, we're going to call a convention and we're going to vote on this issue. So now you have, 
Now you have the United States government, the bureaucracy that can be weaponized against people that publicly support secession. It could be before the act actually takes place. It could be after the act actually takes place. They can use things like the IRS. They can use things like the CIA or the FBI. We all know these entities have been weaponized by the general government. Now, the IRS, you could say, well, we're independent. That's not going to apply to us anymore. They can't do anything. We've just declared our independence. However, we do know that both the FBI and the CIA are all over the world, particularly the CIA, uh, and they're weaponized and they destabilize things. We know this can happen. We know that they get to people. So if you have a delegate, there's going to be a fear. A delegate would say, you know, I, well, I support this and I'm going to do this X, Y, and Z. Well, who's to say the United States government isn't weaponized against those people and they go after them in some way? There is that fear. You don't need the U.S. Army. The United States bureaucracy is bigger and more powerful today than it was in 1860 and 61. You didn't have a CIA or FBI or IRS in 1860 and 61. In fact, you, very, you have very little bureaucracy in 1860 and 61. We've got the, the largest government in the history of the world now that has all kinds of bureaucratic power. This is something I've talked about uh, recently with, uh, the, with the way that maybe a Supreme Court case could tear down the bureaucracy. Again, I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think that the Supreme Court would do that. But this is important. It's an important distinction to make when we're talking about this issue, how this would actually work and play out. It has to be done in convention. But you're going to have to get enough people to believe that secession is not treason, that secession is not illegal, and you have to do that through education. And we're not there yet. We're not. Just look at any kind of discourse on this issue. And even this Newsweek article, we're not at that point yet to where people would say, yeah, I mean, this can happen. This is fine. This is legal. We could have any state do this. We could have Texas do it which, of course, is a conservative state. We could have California do it, which, of course, is a left-wing state. We could have Massachusetts do it. We could have Montana do it. We could have Florida do it. We could have New York do it. Any of these states could do it. Any state, Oklahoma, a landlocked state could even pull it off. Any of these states could do it. Now, let's say Texas, let's just play this out here, for example, and Texas does leave the union. I think you could see an effect from the states around it, particularly Oklahoma. I think Oklahoma would be interested at that point because it would have an access to a water port. I mean, we can say that, you know, Oklahoma is a landlocked state. You still have access with air traffic. But we've seen, you know, for example, in Europe and landlocked states, a little harder. So in a union with Texas, well, then you could have uh, access through Texas to the Gulf of Mexico. So perhaps Oklahoma would be interested in maybe an independence movement at that point. There's always been rumblings about it. There's been people in Oklahoma very interested in this for a long time. So maybe something like that happens. Maybe another state joins up with Texas. Maybe you get a small little confederation in, in, uh, in the middle of the United States, the current United States, with Texas taking the lead. Maybe something like that happens. I don't know. But just to, to be very excited about a ballot, about a ballot proposal is going... You know, a little bit too extreme that how, how this would work. I mean, it's, it's not something that's going to happen immediately, but I would say at least there is a conversation. And they've had almost 100,000 people in Texas agree 
to put this on the ballot. That's not insignificant. In the 1990s, you'd have been hard-pressed to get 1,000 people to do this. But here we are in 2023, and you've got nearly 100,000 people saying they would support this measure. So let me get into this article. Again, it's at Newsweek. The title is, Texas Gets One Step Closer to Leaving U.S., or it could just be us, right? So this is by Andrew Stanton. I don't know who that is. But it says, advocates for Texas secession from the United States believe they're on the verge of scoring a crucial victory. The Texas Republican Party's executive committee is set to vote over the weekend on which ballot propositions voters will decide during the Republican primary elections in March 2024. Now, notice what this is. It's for the Republican primary elections. This would go then into essentially the Republican platform. It'd be something like that. But this is not going before the voters in a plebiscite for the state of Texas to decide. It's for Republican primary voters to decide. So it's a very small victory. So here we have the Texas Republican Executive Committee will have to decide this. One measure would ask Republican voters, should the state of Texas reassert its status as an independent nation? Now, Texas is in a very unique position. I'll say this with all the other states in that it was an independent country for nine years. No other state can claim that other then by using tactics, which of course are true, that they were independent countries according to, for example, the first 13, according to the Treaty of Paris, because every state was recognized individually by the Treaty of Paris. It was a treaty between each state individually, asserting that those states were independent. Jefferson's language in the Declaration says that they were free and independent states, not state, but states, plural, and as independent states... They could do what independent states like the state of Great Britain may do. So the, that language is important. They understood what the meaning of a state was. But Texas actually was in fun a functioning independent country for nine years. If any state has the historical backing of this, it would be Texas. Now, again, I can make the case for any of the original 13. I can make the case for California, which sort of had an independent state government for a time, Republic of Sonoma. I can make a, a case for those. But we also have to understand, even if the state didn't have that historical background, it still had the status of a state based on uh, the... the uh, the nature of these states where they were on equal footing with the existing states. This is how these states came into being. So it didn't matter whether they were an original 13 or not. It's equal footing with the existing states. Ahead of the vote, the Texas Nationalist Movement, an organization that supports Texas independence from the United States, warned the GOP that they have enough signatures to force a vote on the question of whether they support secession. So they have enough votes, enough enough signatures 
to force a vote. So the GOP would have to decide this issue if it's going to be part of the Republican primary election. Not overall. This isn't going to the state entirely. It's going to the Republican primary election. So there is the stumbling block, right? It could get there, but then it's going to have to go beyond that. Then it's going to have to go to the state. And again, I caution people, ballot initiatives are not the same as conventions. That's what really needs to happen here. Ballot initiatives don't carry the same weight. Texas nationalists have for years pushed for a referendum on Texas secession. Wrong move. It has to be through convention. Now, I know that a lot of people who are in, involved in that, in that movement listen to this show. I'm, I'm telling you, it has to be through convention. Now, let's go back to uh, some of the other things. Texas v. White, for example. The very famous or infamous Supreme Court decision of 1869 that said secession, unilateral secession, was illegal. That is also a stumbling block here when people start talking about the issue. What that did not say, though, is that the Congress couldn't boot a state out of the Union. Now, I don't believe that decision is correct. I believe unilateral secession is legal, regardless of what the Supreme Court said. The Supreme Court can change its mind. And that was a very small part of that particular issue. The rest of it had to deal with bonds. And if you take in my How the Supreme Court Screwed Up America class, I actually get into this particular case. And there's something else going on there with contracts and bonds. It's also very important. But they do talk about secession at least flippantly and, and you know kind of disregard it. Salmon P. Chase does. But importantly... There is an out because of the way that he said, well, unilateral secession can't take place. Now, why would Salmon P. Chase do that? Well, because they had military reconstruction. And essentially, as this paragraph gets into, the Congress had kicked states out of the Union. They had to justify that in some way. So let me read this sentence again. Texas nationalists have for years pushed for a referendum on Texas secession despite the fact that there is no provision for a state to secede in the U.S. Constitution. It doesn't have to be. This is a stupid argument. The Constitution is very clear, at least the way it was ratified in 1787 and 1788, through convention, but the public statements about it were very clear on the powers of the central government. It could do what was in Article I, Section 8. The states could not do what's in Article I, Section 10, but their powers were limitless otherwise. So there is no provision for a state to secede because there doesn't have to be. A state can do it because it acceded to the document. It can then secede from the document. You see, there doesn't have to be a provision. There just has to be an act of the people through convention. Just like they acceded to it, they can secede from it in that way. It's important to note. It has to work that way. The state seceded from Mexico in 1836. Well, there was no provision in the Mexican Constitution that allowed the state to secede from the Mexican Union. In fact, the Mexican government tried to violently put it down, but it did it anyways. In fact, that's, you know, when you look at um, how the 
how this worked, uh, Santa Ana called uh, the Texans pirates, stealing land from Mexico. <laughs> now, it was a federation. Mexico was a federation, but uh, at least theoretically. But Texas, he said these people were pirates and spent nine years as its own nation before becoming a U.S. state. See, Andrew Stanton doesn't understand language. Texas was a state when it spent nine years as an independent state and then joined the United States as a state on the same footing as it was before when it was independent. It was a state then. It's a state in the United States. A state is an independent political entity. What these states did was delegate certain powers that they had the power to give, to grant, to the central authority to do these things collectively. Now, only a sovereign entity can do that. Only something with power can do that. And I've used this analogy before. This is also very important. If I'm teaching a class, if you're one of my students, and I say to the class, all right, I'm going to give each one of you the power to grade your own tests. To grade your own, I give you a research paper. You can grade your own paper. You can tell me what the grade you think you should get. Write it on that paper and then justify it. I've given you the authority, potentially, to give your own grade. But at any time, because I delegated that authority, what can I do? I get the papers back and everyone writes they get an A plus on the paper. And I look at the paper and they're terrible. I can then say, you don't have that, a power, that power anymore. Strike it out. You get whatever grade you get. Because I have the authority to do that. This is the same thing the states are doing. We give you the power, general government, to do these things. If you abuse that power, we, of course, can always resume our status as an independent state. During the ratification process, there was argued in many of the conventions that the states would be powerful enough to check unconstitutional power by the general government. The states would be powerful enough to check it. Well, how do they check it? Well, they can use nullification. They can use secession. They can do these things, right? The states can check it. The piece then says it also seceded from the Union in 1861, but before being readmitted following the end of the Civil War in 1870. Now, that one was a head-scratcher. It seceded from the Union in 1861, and then it wasn't readmitted to the Union until 1870. So are you telling me that Texas in 1869 was still an independent state? So what, what Andrew Stanton can't figure out here, of course, is that when the war is over in 1865, uh, Texas was readmitted to the Union under the under the way that Andrew Johnson and Abraham Lincoln had set it up. And then, of course, it was booted back out and then readmitted to the Union again. But you see, you how does that work? The entire Lincolnian argument is that these states never left. They were just states in the Union. So you can't say Texas seceded and then was readmitted, but you've just said Texas secession was illegal and there's no way to do it. You can't have both worlds. And that's important. That's a, that's a real head-scratcher to me. But let's get into the, to the part of the piece that discusses this current situation. 
In June of this year, our organization launched a petition campaign under the Texas Election Code 172.088. This section of the Election Code allows voters, by petition, to place a question on a party's primary ballot. In short, by collecting 97,709 signatures and submitting them by the filing deadline on December 11, 2023, we could actually bypass the SREC's ballots proposition process and compel the party to place the question on the ballot, the letter reads. Now, it goes on a party's primary ballot. So, when voters go to vote in the Republican primary, this would be on the ballot in the Republican primary. However, that doesn't mean it went to the people overall just for the Republican primary. Now, at that point, you would have a much larger discussion of the issue. So this is where I think that, I mean, they're looking at this. There's a much larger issue here. Well, most people in Texas are Republican. It's the majority party. Lots of people go and vote in this primary. So more and more people would vote on the issue. It could go up, it could go down. But they would have a much larger discussion. If it gets past that part, then they could say the will of the people should be that this needs to be discussed in the legislature, the legislature needs to call a convention on down the line. So this is an important strategic move. Now, if it gets voted down there, I don't know if it'll ever come back. You see, now, we know the progressives for years would get defeated and they would keep coming back and coming back. And I would encourage people who support these kind of things to keep coming back and back. It's going to be a little harder for this because people look at this because of not having the proper education, that this is something that's illegal or there's no provision of the Constitution, all this kind of stuff. This is why education is important. That's why McClanahan Academy is so important. Newsweek reached out to the Texas Republican Party for comment via email. If the question makes the primary ballot and passes, it would not be legally binding, nor would it mean Texas is actually seceding from the United States. Still, it would be a key victory for secession advocates who, criti who critics view as a fringe belief that would face significant hurdles in a general election. The letter notes that the question would be advisory only and offers Republican voters to share their thoughts on whether the state should become an independent nation. Well, this is exactly right. But you would have a little stronger understanding of where people stand on this in the Republican Party, which again is the dominant party in the state of Texas. If it goes on the ballot, on the on the primary ballot, and let's say it gets a crushing victory, well then the Republican Party would have to consider going to the legislature and saying this is what the people want. They don't have to at all. They don't have to do it. But it certainly would be an interesting position that, that these people would be in because now you have the voters saying, this is what we want. Would the legislature then follow suit? Would they actually call a convention? You, you wash your hands of it if you call a convention. All right, look, we're going to call a convention, and the convention can decide. That's where you start getting a little more dicey, and the rubber really hits the road at that point. Because when you go into a convention, and the legislature said, we will stand by the results of the convention on this one issue, that's it then if Texas decides, that would be it. I don't think there are enough people educated to actually agree with this at this particular point, but it would be interesting. So the mechanics are in place, which is the important part. 
The organization argued that the party, by including the question on the ballot, would not be endorsing a specific outcome, but instead backing the principle that app perspectives within the party deserve consideration. Placing the question on the ballot brings clarity. If, as our detractors say, this is a fringe issue that no one supports, then they should have no resistance to this question being asked of Republican voters, the letter reads. In fact, they should be some of its strongest supporters. If what they say is true, then the results will show that, in fact, that fact in Texas will be a dead issue in the party for a generation. So they're agreeing that if this thing goes to the ballot and it dies, well, then it's going to die for a generation. Nobody's in support of it. Potentially. But if it doesn't, what, what the Texas Nationalist Party group is hoping for is that it will actually make it past this hurdle and they have to discuss this in open, an open legislature because the will of the people is behind it. The latest effort to push for a vote on secession also comes as Texas undergoes a major political shift. Texas cities and suburbs, once ruby-red areas that kept the state safely Republican, have shifted toward Democrats in recent election cycles with President Joe Biden flipping suburban counties outside of Austin and Dallas during the 2020 presidential election. The Democratic shift has sparked questions about the political future of the state, as the state GOP has also faced heightened infighting as its margins continue to slip. So this is a big issue because, of course, you know, Texas, uh, we, Texas is going purple. I don't agree with that. I'm not even certain in 2020... If that was a normal election, if these things would have would have gone that direction. But maybe, maybe. However, this is going to be something that if it's put up to the Republican voters, will be an interesting issue. And I think Texas, look, if they follow the, the proper procedures, it is going to be on the ballot. And then we'll see what the Republican voters of the state say. And at that point, then it's going to get real interesting. So... Again, it's always good to revisit this and how important education is, how important the convention process is. We have to keep that in mind. This is just a ballot initiative that's going to go to the Republican primary voters only, not to the whole state. It doesn't do anything else. It's non-binding. But at least it will be something that they can hold up and say, this is the voice of the people in the Republican Party. This is what we want or this is what we don't want. And then we can go from there. All right. See you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. <music>